Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 48 hours. We take you there. The murder of 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhouse went unsolved for 20 years. It was the most horrible sight you could ever imagine. Police reopened the investigation. I have a breakdown of suspects. Then 48 Hours looked into the case, and dozens of new witnesses came forward. As we were watching it, I said, oh my God. Revealing a startling link with other unsolved crime. I think that's the guy that attacked me. There's more. This is the Ewing family. A surprising connection to another murder case. Four victims in one family. And then another shot. It went right next to my head. Bill, who was just 11, was the only survivor. What do you remember that night? Just about everything. Aaron Moriarty investigates. Are police finally about to solve a serial killing spree? Did you kill her? And this woman vanished without a trace. I opened the drum up and I could see what appeared to be a human hand. But how do you catch a killer after 30 years? A name popped up. Susan Spencer reports on bringing new evidence to light. Mr. Elkins, unbelievable. And how this Florida retiree became a wanted man. A 48 hours mystery never forgot. The police have an arsenal of new weapons for solving old crimes. Examine the evidence in a different light, and you just might find an answer to the question, who committed murder? Good evening. For a homicide detective, there are few words sweeter than case closed. Over the past few years, 48 Hours has been tracking a number of unsolved crimes, cold cases that are finally getting solved. Some of them decades old. Tonight we examine two murder mysteries. One case goes back over 30 years and hinges on a truly state-of-the-art crime-fighting device. We begin, though, with Aaron Moriarty and a case in which 48 Hours reporting has played a pivotal role, helping uncover crucial links between several crimes, helping investigators to solve a puzzle which has haunted them for years. You think, oh my God, you're going to die, you know, and you don't want to die. You want to get help. You just have to get out of the house. You just, you just want to get away from there. Bill Hewling was only 11 years old when the sound of a single shotgun blast jolted him out of a child's dream world. That tends to wake you up a little bit more. And into a living nightmare. I just kind of glanced over at my brother and it's like, we both were awake, and it's like, hey, what's going on? And about that time, the upstairs light came on. In December of 1978, 
Someone walked into his family's secluded home in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and shot his mother dead. What do you remember that night? Just about everything. Alice Euling's four children, in bed upstairs, were next. My brother said, who are you? What happened after your brother asked? The person raised uh, the gun up towards him and shot. <laughs> and at that point, I became very scared and just pulled the covers over my head and laid in bed. Bill's 13-year-old brother, Wayne, was dead. I heard the person walk away. Um, it sounded like he walked into my sister Susie's room, and she kind of, like, screamed a little bit. The next two gunshots claimed his older sisters, Susie and Patty. And then footsteps back into my bedroom. And then um, a sh another shot. It went right next to my head. Um, I had my arms up over my head like this, and the shot, I guess, hit right about here. <clears throat> didn't, didn't hit me or anything. And as a person poked me, I think I kind of breathed a little bit or moved. So the killer fired a second time to finish him off and somehow missed again. And I guess I didn't move that time because then the footsteps started walking away. Do you think he knew you were still alive? No. No. After the killer left, Bill ran almost two miles to the neighbors for help. Jim Castriva was the first officer on the scene. As you go from room to room and find the bodies of these children laying in their beds dead, it really affects you emotionally. It's something that you never forget. There were plenty of suspects, but no one was charged with the murders. Bill Hewley, now 32 years old, might have spent the rest of his life haunted by the mystery if not for a determined band of detectives. This is one of the toughest cases because we literally don't know who did it. Uh, it's a uh, whodunit. Most While investigating wrong, another unsolved homicide, detectives stumbled across a link between that case and the Hewling murders. We have a young girl, Marlis Wallenhouse, comes home from school. It was 1996 when detectives reopened the case of 18-year-old Marlis Wallenhouse. 48 hours was there. The house is unlocked. It's a rural home way out of the way. At that time, there didn't appear to be any link between Marlis's murder and the Hewling family shootings five months earlier and 150 miles apart. She was struck then on the back of the head here, here. An hour later, her mother comes home and she finds her. It was the most horrible sight you could ever imagine. I knew there was no hope for survival. She's taken to the hospital and she's pronounced dead two days later. Everett Doolittle heads Minnesota's Cold Case Unit, a division of the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. In your packet, I have a breakdown of suspects. The list of almost a dozen murder suspects in the Wollen House murder. The stepfather was looked at quite strong. The next one's a boyfriend, the person that lives in the woods. Hadn't changed much. We dusted fingerprints, found nothing, found no weapon any place. Because in 17 years, there hadn't been enough evidence to indict or eliminate any of them. So we don't have a motive here. We have no DNA, we have no fingerprints. One of the suspects was this man. We're going to talk in here. Neighbor person number one lives in the area. He's a problem. He uses a lot of drugs. When Marlis was murdered, he was just a teenager. You knew her, didn't you? Yes, I did. How did you know her? 
uh, basically through her brother. That neighbor, Tom Cartoni, had had a serious drug problem. Have you ever had any, uh, any history of violence? No. no. Although Cartoni has never been charged, the ordeal has taken its toll. So many people to this day still seem to feel I had an involvement in it. I was at a party and enjoying myself with some friends, and a young man came up to me and said, quote, you son of a bitch, you killed her and I'm going to kill you. And he proceeded to pound my butt into the dirt. And then there was this suspect, already in prison for another murder. He's in prison right now for three rapes and a brutal murder of a young girl, Diane Edwards. Why was he a suspect? Because in 1981, almost three years after Marlis's murder, Drifter Joe Turry allegedly confessed to a cellmate that he killed her. She was struck then on the back of the head, here, here. But what's more, he also confessed to the Hewling murders. We have a confession written by another person, not him, but signed by him and verified it's his signature, and he admits he, that's his signature. This is the evidence. The confession letters were big news when first family. reported. In the confession to the Marlis Wollenhaus murder, Joseph Turi said when he found Marlis alone in the home, he went in and asked Marlis to have sex with him. When she refused, now quoting from Turi, I freaked and hit her three or four times in the head with the hatchet. In the Hewling murder confession, Turi says he went to the Hewling home armed with a shotgun and a billy club with the intention of raping one of the Hewling daughters. But when he entered the home and went to Mrs. Hewling's bedroom, she recognized him. Turi says, she told me to leave my house, you pervert. So I shot her above the knees with the shotgun. By this time, I was really going crazy. But even with these confessions, Joe Turi wasn't charged with either Marlis's murder or that of the Hewlings. For one thing, Turry denied dictating the letters. He said he didn't dictate it. He said he signed blank sheets of paper and this other person made this up. In fact, why should the police believe you? The only person who says Turry did dictate the confessions Well, that's their choice. was his cellmate who asked us to conceal his identity. You're looking for a deal. You might have set him up. Of course, everybody in life is looking for a deal. Why would I confess to an inmate in the county jail? I took a lie detector test, did he? He won't take a lie detector test. But more significantly, Joe Turry told us he had an alibi for the day of Marlis's murder. He was signed in at his job with Ford Motors. Joe Turry was at work at the time of the murder and couldn't have done it. At least that's what investigators believed for almost 20 years, until Doolittle decided to check out the alibi. Hi, Everett Doolittle here from B. In fact, there was a Joe Turry at work that day, but it was Joe Turry Sr., his father. Once Joe Turry's alibi didn't hold up, it changes the whole world in this thing. From then on, Joe Turry became the chief suspect in the Wollen House and the Hewling family murders. But when we aired this story back in 1996, Doolittle still didn't have enough to convict him. That drastically changed when some viewers saw our broadcast. As we were watching it, I started shaking and I said, oh my God, I think that's the guy that attacked me. That's next.
you would write down women's names, you would take down their license plates, They'll and they run away. But you were a stalker. Is that what you did to Marlis? Nope. Joe Turry denies he's the man who brutally murdered 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhouse in May of 1979. Did you kill her? Nope. Never met her. But in this interview aired on 48 Hours in 1996... Joe Turry has been convicted of two rapes... Turry did admit that he would track down women he wanted to meet through their automobile license tags. Women you didn't know, just saw on the street, just saw in a car. How often would you do that? Once in a while. Also, I had a lot of dates from waitresses out of restaurants. Had dates and had turndowns. But if I got turned down, I didn't go out and kill the waitress. I just never forget a face. I never forget his face. Simply by chance, Levon Ingesether was watching 48 Hours that night. As we were watching it, I started shaking and I said, oh my God, I think that's the guy that attacked me. Levon and dozens of other women recognized Tori as the man who attacked them years earlier. How many women came forward in 96? Oh, we had so many, it was unbelievable. I mean, we had phone calls from even out of state. We spoke with three of those women, LaVon, Nancy, and Cheryl. You all have Joe Turry in common. Another thing most of these women had in common, they were waitresses. In 1974, LaVon had just left for the night when her last customer, a man she now knows to be Joe Turry, jumped out of the bushes. Next thing I knew, he was on top of me and uh, drooling on me. And um, I don't know if he was kissing me, uh, but I just flung him off me and ran back to where my boyfriend was. Five years later, Terry forced Nancy, also a waitress at the time, into the back of his van. That quick. And I just started screaming and trying to fight him. And then I thought, you can't overpower him. He's In a move that may have saved her life, Nancy right suddenly stopped arms. fighting. So I said, you might as well just kill me. And I, I, just these words kept pouring out of my mouth. I said, I'm pregnant. My dad just kicked, you know, beat the crap out of me and kicked me out of the house. Now you're making up I'm all making of this? I'm making up all of it. And he just immediately stopped and he looked at me and he got up. Nancy and LaVon both say police at the time urged them to forget about the incidents. It was still that boys will be boys mentality. You know, he also was, he got a little out of control. Nothing happened, you're okay. Then in 1980, another waitress, 19-year-old Diane Edwards, was attacked and killed. And just three weeks after that... I was probably about a half a block from my car when somebody was behind me. Cheryl says Terry also forced her into the back of the van. And then I remember thinking, oh my God, Diane Edwards. I started screaming, and that's when he started smashing my head up against the side of the window. He raped you? Yes, he did, yeah. yeah. And then he forced me to perform oral sex on him, too. In Cheryl's case, Terry was charged with rape, but he never went to trial. They had already by this time gotten the Diane Edwards thing pinned on him. So at the time, they figured, well, we'll have this guy locked up forever. So rather than putting you through the emotional trauma of another trial, so I, I said, that's fine. Many of the assaults might have been prevented. When the police pick him up, 
he has a stocking cap in his vehicle. Before either Nancy or Cheryl was attacked, police stopped Joe Turry in a stolen car. And they find all these papers. In Inside, they found hundreds of names, license tags, and telephone numbers of women mostly waitresses. Where they worked, what they wore, what they drove. But it wasn't enough to hold him. So Turi was released and free until 1981 when he was finally charged and convicted of the murder of Diane Edwards, one of the women he had targeted. The women who came forward convinced Everett Doolittle he did have the right man, that Joe Turi killed Marlis Wollenhouse, also a waitress. But Doolittle didn't have enough evidence to convince a jury until yet another witness came forward after watching 48 hours. The words, and then I killed her, ring in my head to this day. Dave Hofstad called the cold case detective because he'll never forget what Joe Turry told him back in 1981 while he was an investigator on the Diane Edwards case. When I sat down with him, I asked him, Joe, uh, can I talk to you? And he said, as long as you don't take any notes, no paper or pencils, I'll talk to you. Acting on a hunch that Turi might be behind Marlis's murder, Hofstad asked Turi if he knew her. And he said that she worked at a restaurant, he knew her, he wanted to date her or had dated her. And uh, he said that he had gone to her home and wanted to talk to her. So he was in the house waiting for her when she came home and they argued. And then his statement was, I killed her. Even though Hofstad reported Turi's admission to his superiors, he was largely ignored as detectives focused on another suspect. But when Hofstad called Doolittle 15 years later, Doolittle immediately knew he'd found the missing piece of his puzzle. One piece alone in this case wouldn't make it. It's when you put them all together. The investigator's testimony was just what Doolittle needed to back up the confession letters he already had from Turi. I freaked and hit her three or four times in the head with the hatchet. Not guilty. Almost 20 years after Marlis Woolenhouse's death, Joe Turry was charged and convicted of her murder. Nothing will ever bring my daughter back, but I know that I have done the last thing I can do for her. It's finally over for Marlis's mother, but not for Doolittle. There's yet one more mystery to solve. One that could finally eliminate Turi's chances for parole. Can Doolittle prove Joe Turi also killed Bill Hewling's family? Christmas time. We were all there together, which we were at all the holidays, which was nice. This is the Ewing family that in 1978 were all murdered other than Billy. The murders of Alice Ewing and three of her children were shocking, not just for the brutality. Somebody shot her and went through and shot all the kids. And not just because the unknown killer was free to kill again. There's lots of things that would have been done differently today. But because the evidence to catch the Ewing killer may have been there from the beginning if detectives had only asked the right questions. The cold case unit spends its time studying the errors of others and we had the time to do it. As we told you, police found women's names and addresses in Joe Turi's car right after the Hewling murders. What else was found in the car? 
But there was something else that should have worried police even more. Well, they found a ski mask. They found a club. Why is the club found in the car significant? It's an interesting club. It's wrapped in leather and has little circles in it, and there's a bruise on Alice Euling that's very similar to that. What else was found in the car? A little car. What kind of car? A little Batmobile. A toy car. What was that doing in Turry's vehicle? We find a police report where they interviewed Joe Turry, and Joe Turry got really very agitated, it said, when they asked him whose car this was. The first officer on the scene in 1978, Jim Kostriba. He had first told us that the car belonged to his granddaughter, and when we tried to explain to him that he was a little young to have a granddaughter, he became real flustered. He was only about 27 at the time, right? Right. Twenty years later, Doolittle finally did what detectives back then failed to do. We asked Billy, did you have any of these, like a Hot Wheel car? And his answer was, why did you find my Batmobile? Have you or any of the other investigators said, oh my God, why didn't we take that car back to Billy and ask if it was his? I've asked myself that and I've asked them, you know, why, wasn't, why wouldn't this have been done back then? And I can't answer that. Does that bother you when you think about it now? To someone. To think that he was that close and to think of all the other things that he did after that. The result was that Joe Turry was free to kill Marlis Wollenhouse five months later, Diane Edwards two years after that, and rape at least four women in between. I would hate to be the guy who picked him up, you know, and say, oh, we had this guy and we let him go. So whether Joe Turry is convicted of these murders or not could come down to that little car. Oh, it would be a very important part. Yes. There was one other item investigators never bothered to show Bill Hewling, Turry's 1981 confession to the murders. In fact, to this day, no one has ever asked Bill Hewling, the sole survivor, about the confession letter it's rare. until now. He said he had a blue jacket, blue jeans, a ski mask, stocking cap, and a 12-gauge shotgun. Is all that accurate? Yes. What about the tan van in the backyard? That was our van. In the confession, it describes your mom's bedroom as being on the main floor mm -hmm. between the kitchen and the living room. Was that accurate? Yes. I mean, how would someone know this? You wouldn't unless you were in the house. Joe Terry described your mom wearing a white pullover nightgown. Yeah. That was accurate? Yeah. Eleven-year-old Bill Hewling spent the next few years under the care of psychologists and social workers while living in a foster home. Basically, I think that helped out the most was talking about it. Today, Joe Turi stands trial for the murder of Bill Hewling's family. I still have the feelings of anger, madness, disappointment that it took so long, but I'm just glad the day has come to uh, put an end to all this, and hopefully we can get the conviction. Almost 22 years later, Will Bill Hewling finally get the justice he's looking for? That's next. This 500-gallon tank is used by homicide detectives for ballistics testing. 
a gun is fired into the tank, there's water inside to keep the bullet relatively undamaged. Then, once the bullet is retrieved, investigators can compare the markings with evidence from a crime scene by using the microscope. It's more than 20 years since four members of Bill Hewling's family were shot to death in their St. Cloud, Minnesota home. Now, a jury will decide whether that crime was the work of a drifter named Joe Turi, who police say is looking more and more like a serial killer. Here again is Aaron Moriarty. The man who lost his entire family as a child has a new family as an adult, a wife and two children. Together, they're trying to make some sense of the past. We want the satisfaction knowing that the jury has decided from all the evidence that, yes, this is the guy. Bill Hewling, a first-class petty officer in the Navy, is about to testify against the man he believes killed his mom, his brother, and his two sisters 22 years ago. I wouldn't say I'm frightened about it. I'm a little nervous because it's in front of a jury my first time, and, and I, I just hope it all goes well. Fran, the mother of one of Turry's other victims, Marlis Wallenhouse, will also be there for Joe Turry's final trial. I think the Hewling family deserves justice. And so will Everett Doolittle and his cold case unit. When I was here before, Joe Terry was considered a killer of one woman. Mm -hmm. How do you see him now today? Oh, it's a serial murder. I don't think there's any doubt. But what matters now is what the jurors think. On this day, Bill Hewling has a painful story to tell them. person shows up in the doorway of the bedroom, raised a gun up towards him, and shot. I was trying not to breathe, trying to the person still. go away. You think, oh my God, you're going to die, and you don't want to die. After taking the stand twice, it is over. Finally over for Bill Hewling. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I didn't think it was going to bother me as much as it did. Basically, the hardest thing was just reliving it. And, you know, you seeing your brother and your sister and your mother dead. Just talking about it slow and detailed like that. It was emotional. Did Joe Turry kill Bill's family? The jury believes he did. He's found guilty and sentenced to four consecutive life sentences. And since we first aired this program in March, Bill Hewling has moved on with his life. I chose to go with life, move on with my life, and do the best I can do with what basically God gave me, another chance. Coming up, this woman vanished 30 years ago. I opened the drum up and I could see what appeared to be a human hand. Wait a minute, what is this? Now, an amazing tool is bringing new evidence to light. Mr. Elkins, unbelievable. And turning a retiree into a wanted man. Next. character, fun. She was fantastic. I loved her very much. Very happy, full of life, full of dreams. She was a beautiful person. Can you imagine 30 years without knowing anything, just waiting and waiting for some news? It is astonishing that somebody could simply vanish 
for 30 years. People vanish in New York, you know. Indeed, that's just what happened to Raina Marroquine, who came to New York with every immigrant's dream. She told my mom, I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to be somebody someday. Now, three decades later, Raina's life has come full circle. Her sister Dora is taking her home to her native El Salvador. All we want is to bring her body back. And my mother, who is 95 years old, will finally be able to put her daughter to rest. The story starts, innocently enough, here in Jericho, Long Island, with the sale of that house. The new owners wanted some debris removed, especially a large drum found in a crawl space underneath an addition. Over the years, other families who had lived here had noticed it there as well. It weighed a ton. And I said, why? Who cares? Arthur and Judith Eben and three other families lived here over the years, but no one ever suspected that the barrel held a horrible secret. We did roll it into the corner, forgot about it. And it was out of sight, out of mind for 12 years. A secret discovered only when curious movers opened the airtight drum a year ago. Homicide Sergeant Evans. Police were called immediately. I saw that there was a 55-gallon drum on the curb line outside the house. Detective uh, Sergeant Robert told, Edwards. I opened the drum up and I could see what appeared to be a human hand with a ring on it. Inside was a mummified young woman with long black hair. An autopsy showed she was pregnant and had been bludgeoned to death. You actually have a leopard jacket and a, a sweater and some sort of top. Detectives Dennis Ryan, a 20-year veteran, and Joan Furtner, tackling her first big forensics case, found an abundance of leads left by an apparently careless killer. If we had to isolate one clue here in terms of the importance to this case, it's that address book, right? Absolutely. But I see no writing on here at all. Well, some of the pages actually you can visually see very faintly. But not well enough to actually read and time had taken its toll not just on the address book. Did you not also find a note of some sort? Yes. That's the piece of paper? Yes. How do you even know what's front? Well, it, it's just a matter of manipulating it around when we put it under the VSC-2000. That's the Video Spectral Comparator, or VSC-2000, a cutting-edge tool in cracking cold cases. It allows you to see in the infrared, the ultraviolet, and in the visible range. And in that light, once invisible letters magically appear to the naked eye. Detective Furtner got busy. When you first started looking at this address book, though, I mean, did you even know what you were looking for? No. I knew I was just looking for names and whatever information I could find from it. And as I was looking at the information on this page, a name popped up with an address. You can just barely make out Maro Keen on here. The victim's name, it would turn out, was Reina Maro Keen, the girl who'd left El Salvador so full of hope more than 30 years ago. I'm sorry that I don't write often, but I always think of you. Reina left El Salvador in August of 1966, eager for a new start after a failed marriage. For three years, she wrote her family here in San Martin regularly. Then the letters suddenly stopped. What is this? We put announcements in the paper in El Salvador. Young Salvadorian woman missing in New York. 
Over the years, her sister Dora and the rest of the family accepted that they might never know what happened to Raina. Not knowing about someone you love is so difficult. But back in New York... I was hoping we'd find something, yeah. Detective Joan Furtner found someone who did know and who proved to be the key to unraveling the mystery. The address that's listed in the book, she still resides at that address. This is her friend Kathy. This is her friend Kathy who knew the entire history of the victim. She was fascinated by New York. Kathy Andrade was Raina Marroquin's best friend. She was so happy to be here. Raina studied English, fashion, and took citizenship classes. Very anxious to become a citizen. She loved this country very much. She had a room in a Catholic home for women, a circle of friends, and a job in a plastics factory. She was full of life, eager to learn. But one day, Kathy says, Raina's happy life began to crumble. I noticed a change in her, and, uh, and I said, I, you have a, do you have a problem? Then she started to cry, and she says, yes, I have a problem. I am pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. And I was in shock. Raina refused to tell Kathy who the father was. She did admit he was married. He got her a private doctor and an apartment in New Jersey. Do you yes. think she really believed that he yes. was going to marry her? Yes. But that was a promise he had no plan to keep. And this is when she lost her head. Kathy says Raina was desperate. She lost her head and she called the house and told his wife. After that call to her boyfriend's wife, Raina phoned Kathy in a panic. She says, he's going to kill me. I said, no, just calm down. Nothing is going to happen. Nobody's going to. Yes, yes, she says, he's going to kill me. Kathy rushed to her friend's apartment. When I got there and I knocked on the door, nobody answered. And then I really got scared. The door was ajar, warm food left on the stove. Everything was in order. But a winter coat was there. A pocketbook was there. Gloves were there. The boots were there. And, and it was winter. Raina was gone. I waited for about four hours. And I said, no, I better get to the police. And I went to the police. But the police said, are you a relative? Oh, he said, don't worry. Took off with her boyfriend. Come back in about a week. But who was this mysterious boyfriend? Wait a minute, what is this? The clue that led to a killer. Mr. Elkins. Next on 48 Hours. Unbelievable. She's in the middle here? Yeah. Is that in Central Park? Maybe. Yes. Yeah. When Raina Maro Keen suddenly stopped writing home in 1969, her mother in El Salvador feared the worst. It was like a constant feeling in my heart all the time. I think it'd be a terrible thing for a parent to go all those years and never know what happened to a daughter. An immigrant without nearby relatives, Raina Maro Keen had simply fallen through the cracks. Where did you begin? Well, we started to go backwards with the uh, prior owners of the house. With the grisly discovery of her body 30 years later, Detective Robert Edwards looked first at that innocent-looking house on Long Island. We did roll it into the corner. Forgot about it. He went as far back as the second owners, the Ebbins. And they said, no, nope, that was there from the time we moved in. It was there since the time we bought the house. So Edwards focused on the man who had sold the house to them. Howard was a very tall, good-looking, distinguished 
businessman. Then, the detective came across a vital piece of evidence linking that man to Reyna. We found out that uh, he worked for a plastics company where they made plastic flowers. Inside the drum, we found the stem of a plastic flower. The trail eventually led police to this retirement community in Boca Raton, Florida, and to one Howard Elkins. In 1969, Elkins had owned both the plastics factory where Raina Marroquin worked and the house where her body later was found. I think he was a little taken back when he rang his doorbell. Elkins, father of three, lived with his wife, enjoyed sailing, and was known as a pleasant but private person. He came across as a person who was very comfortable with himself, that was very um, glib. And he denied knowing anything about any drum. He could look you right in the eye and tell you, I don't have any knowledge of this. But although calm at first, Elkins got increasingly nervous as police pressed for details. He, he wouldn't answer readily. He would just stare at you when you answered him a question. These were hard questions. He finally admitted having had an affair with an employee, but claimed he couldn't remember the specifics. He didn't remember a name. He couldn't give us a physical description at all. Okay, so you went through this just page by page? Yes. Sir. Meanwhile, back in New York, this took a lot of time. The evidence against Elkins was mounting, with painstaking forensics paying off with startling clues. Wait a minute, what is this? Okay, we can zoom in there for you. Mr. Elkins. Unbelievable. Elkins couldn't explain why his name was in the address book, but Detective Edwards needed more to positively link his suspect and his victim. There came a time when we asked him uh, if we could take a DNA swab of the uh, inside of his mouth, and he refused that. Remember, Raina was pregnant when she died, and DNA could determine if the unborn child was Elkins, giving him a possible motive for the crime. He's a married man having an affair with a woman that he works with in a factory, and now she's pregnant. Edwards was starting to feel that the 30-year-old murder of Raina Marroquin soon would be a mystery no more. When we left him that day, we made it very evident to him that we were going to go forward with this, that we were going to attempt to uh, get a warrant for his DNA, and I think that he felt that at that time he was going to be had. Then this most bizarre case took its most bizarre turn yet. The whole day went by before the warrant was issued. We called into the office here and we were told that the Boca Raton police were, were looking for us. The urgent message from the police within 24 hours after Detective Edwards left him, Howard Elkins came here to this Walmart, bought a shotgun, went to his neighbor's garage and shot himself to death. He didn't have a lot of options. If he was arrested, he was a man that was 71 years old. What was he going to do, spend the rest of his life in prison for a crime that had happened 30 years before? You know, I don't know what went through his mind, but obviously it was something that he didn't want to face up to. At Elkins' autopsy, police got his DNA. How did it come out, Mike? What did they give us? Uh, the probability of fraternity is 99.93%. 99.93%. And in that note from Raina's address book, they found even more evidence that her affair with Elkins may have cost her her life. You can see, don't be mad. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had to... No, there's a T, an O, an L, and a D. Don't be mad, I told the truth. Did a chill go up your spine when you heard that? Yeah. We found a, uh, a motive. We found the suspect. 
and uh, and I think the case is basically closed at this time. As for exactly what happened that winter day three decades ago... I think he comes to the apartment, takes her out of there. I think he takes her to the factory. There's no doubt in my mind that he's the, uh, the one that killed this woman. I don't think he knew what to do with her. I think he had a plan that he was going to package her up and perhaps get rid of her. But once the package was completed, it was just too heavy for one person to move. And I think at that time he... Uh, he was stuck. For her loved ones, after 30 years, the tales don't seem nearly as important as the fact that Raina Marroquin is finally back home. Now I know she's with me. She came flying like a dove back to her home. I feel happy that finally she's rested in peace in the suburb where she belongs. My sister is still alive with us. We will never forget her. A remarkable story. A remarkable case. Even though long-standing cold case murders are being solved with growing frequency, it's ironic that newer cases are proving tougher to crack, according to the FBI. There are several reasons, including that perpetrators are more skillful at getting around high-tech police tools. For example, learning how not to leave DNA evidence at the scene. Also, witnesses seem increasingly reluctant to testify. Fortunately, there's always one constant in the crime-solving equation. Dedicated detectives who keep on caring no matter how much time goes by. So it was with Raina Marroquin, even 30 years after the Salvadorian immigrant disappeared, and the murders of Bill Hewling's family and Marla's Wollenhaus over 20 years ago. The American justice system and the police have their imperfections, but they also still have the capacity to never forget. That's 48 hours for tonight. Now, here's a preview of our next broadcast. Was a school of this family was forced out of their home when something mysterious moved in. This is not overdoing. No, absolutely not. It's a toxic mold that can turn deadly. In layman's terms, told me that I had brain damage. And it's more common than you might think. The daughter of racing champ Al Unser Jr. was paralyzed by a mysterious infection overnight. I looked to my mom and said, what's happening to me? And this three-year-old died from something in the water at a county fair. We literally pick up germs that can make us ill every day. And we're always playing a Russian roulette game. Protecting yourself against invisible killers. Tomorrow. I'm Dan Rather. Thanks for choosing CBS. Stay tuned now for your late local news. Tomorrow morning, be sure to watch the early show with Brant Gumbel and Jane Clayson. Then we'll see you tomorrow night on the CBS Evening News. From the Sheriff's Bureau of Criminal Investigation in Bergen County, New Jersey. Good night. I seemed to feel I had an involvement in it. I was at a party and enjoying myself with some friends, and a young man came up to me and said, quote, you son of a bitch, you killed her, and I'm going to kill you. And he proceeded to pound my butt into the dirt. And then there was this suspect, already in prison for another murder. He's in prison right now for three rapes and a brutal murder of a young girl, Diane Edwards.
Why was he a suspect? Because in 1981, almost three years after Marlis's murder, drifter Joe Turi allegedly confessed to a cellmate that he killed her. She was struck then on the back of the head here, here. But what's more, he also confessed to the Hewling murders. We have a confession written by another person, not him, but signed by him and verified it's his signature, and he admits he, that's his signature. This is the evidence. The confession letters were big news when first family. reported. In the confession to the Marlis Wollenhaus murder, Joseph Turi said when he found Marlis alone in the home, he went in and asked Marlis to have sex with him. When she refused, now quoting from Turi, I freaked and hit her three or four times in the head with the hatchet. In the Hewling murder confession, Turi says he went to the Hewling home armed with a shotgun and a billy club with the intention of raping one of the Hewling daughters. But when he entered the home and went to Mrs. Hewling's bedroom, she recognized him. Turi says, she told me to leave my house, you pervert. So I shot her above the knees with the shotgun. By this time, I was really going crazy. But even with these confessions, Joe Turi wasn't charged with either Marlis's murder or that of the Hewlings. For one thing, Turi denied dictating the letters. He said he didn't dictate it. He said he signed blank sheets of paper and this other person made this up. In fact, why should the police believe you? The only person who says Turi did dictate the confessions Well, that's her choice. was his cellmate, who asked us to conceal his identity. You're looking for a deal. You might have set him up. Of course, everybody in life is looking for a deal. Why would I confess to an inmate in the county jail? I took a lie detector test, did he? He won't take a lie detector test. But more significantly, Joe Turry told us he had an alibi for the day of Marlis's murder. He was signed in at his job with Ford Motors. Joe Turry was at work at the time of the murder and couldn't have done it. At least that's... 48 hours. We take you there. The murder of 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhaus went unsolved for 20 years. It was the most horrible sight you could ever imagine. Police reopened the investigation. I have a breakdown of suspects. Then 48 Hours looked into the case, and dozens of new witnesses came forward. As we were watching it, I said, oh my God. Revealing a startling link with other unsolved crimes. I think that's the guy that attacked me. There's more. This is the Ewing family. A surprising connection to another murder case. Four victims in one family. And then another shot. It went right next to my head. Bill, who was just 11, was the only survivor. What do you remember that night? This about everything. Aaron Moriarty investigates. Are police finally about to solve a serial killing spree? Did you kill her? And this woman vanished without a trace. I opened the drum up and I could see what appeared to be a human hand. But how do you catch a killer after 30 years? A name popped up. Susan Spencer reports on bringing new evidence to light. Mr. Elkins, unbelievable. And how this Florida retiree became a wanted man. A 48 hours mystery never forget. The police have an arsenal of new weapons for solving old crimes. 
Examine the evidence in a different light, and you just might find an answer to the question, who committed murder? Good evening. For a homicide detective, there are few words sweeter than case closed. Over the past few years, 48 Hours has been tracking a number of unsolved crimes, cold cases that are finally getting solved, some of them decades old. Tonight we examine two murder mysteries. One case goes back over 30 years and hinges on a truly state-of-the-art crime-fighting device. We begin, though, with Aaron Moriarty and a case in which... Four Jim Castriva was the first officer on the scene. As you go from room to room and find the bodies of these children laying in their beds dead, it really affects you emotionally. It's something that you never forget. There were plenty of suspects, but no one was charged with the murders. Bill Hewley, now 32 years old, might have spent the rest of his life haunted by the mystery, if not for a determined band of detectives. This is one of the toughest cases because we literally don't know who did it. Uh, it's a, a who done it. While investigating another unsolved homicide, detectives stumbled across a link between that case and the Hewley murders. We have a young girl, Marlis Wallenhouse comes home from school. It was 1996 when detectives reopened the case of 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhouse. 48 Hours was there. The house is unlocked. It's a rural home way out of the way. At that time, there didn't appear to be any link between Marlis's murder and the Hewling family shootings five months earlier and 150 miles apart. She was struck then on the back of the head here here. An hour later, her mother comes home and she finds her. It was the most horrible sight you could ever imagine. I knew there was no hope for survival. She's taken to the hospital and she's pronounced dead two days later. Everett Doolittle heads Minnesota's Cold Case Unit, a division of the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. In your packet, I have a breakdown of suspects. The list of almost a dozen murder suspects in the Wollen House murder. The stepfather was looked at quite strong. The next one's a boyfriend, the person that lives in the woods. Hadn't changed much. We dusted fingerprints, found nothing, found no weapon any place. Because in 17 years, there hadn't been enough evidence to indict or eliminate any of them. So we don't have a motive here. We have no DNA, we have no fingerprints. One of the suspects was this man. We're going to talk in here. Neighbor person number one, lives in the area, he's a problem, he uses a lot of drugs. When Marlis was murdered, he was just a teenager. You knew her, didn't you? Yes, I did. Now, how did you know her? Uh, basically through her brother. That neighbor, Tom Cartoni, had had a serious drug problem. Have you ever had any, uh, any history of violence? No. Although Cartoni has never been charged, the ordeal has taken its toll. So many people to this day still... But investigators believed for almost 20 years, until Doolittle decided to check out the alibi. Hi, Ever Doolittle here from B. In fact, there was a Joe Turry at work that day, but it was Joe Turry Sr., his father. Once Joe Turry's alibi didn't hold up, it changes the whole world in this thing. From then on, Joe Turry became the chief suspect in the Wollen House and the Hewling family murders. But when we aired this story back in 1996, Doolittle still didn't have enough to convict him. 
That drastically changed when some viewers saw our broadcast. As we were watching it, I started shaking and I said, oh my God, I think that's the guy that attacked me. That's next. You would write down women's names. You would take down their license plates. Don't make run me a killer. But you were a stalker. Is that what you did to Marlis? Nope. Joe Turry denies he's the man who brutally murdered 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhouse in May of 1979. Did you kill her? Nope. Never met her. But in this interview aired on 48 Hours in 1996... Joe Turi has been convicted of two rapes... Turi did admit that he would track down women he wanted to meet through their automobile license tags. Women you didn't know, just saw on the street, just saw in a car. How often would you do that? Once in a while. Also, I had a lot of dates from waitresses out of restaurants. Had dates and had turned downs. But... If I got turned down, I didn't go out and kill the waitress. I just never forget a face. I never forget his face. Simply and by chance, Levon Ingesether was watching 48 Hours that night. As we were watching it, I started shaking and I said, oh my God, I think that's the guy that attacked me. Levon and dozens of other women recognized Tori as the man who attacked them. Year. 48 Hours reporting has played a pivotal role, helping uncover crucial links between several crimes, helping investigators to solve a puzzle which has haunted them for years. You think, oh my God, you're going to die, you know, and you don't want to die. You want to get help. You just have to get out of the house. You just, you just want to get away from there. Bill Hewling was only 11 years old when the sound of a single shotgun blast jolted him out of a child's dream world. That tends to wake you up a little bit more. And into a living nightmare. I just kind of glanced over at my brother, and it's like we both were awake, and it's like, hey, what's going on? And about that time, the upstairs light came on. In December of 1978, Someone walked into his family's secluded home in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and shot his mother dead. What do you remember that night? Just about everything. Alice Euling's four children, in bed upstairs, were next. My brother said, who are you? What happened after your brother asked? The person raised uh, the gun up towards him and shot. <laughs> and at that point, I became very scared and just pulled the covers over my head and laid in bed. Bill's 13-year-old brother, Wayne, was dead. I heard the person walk away. Um, it sounded like he walked into my sister Susie's room, and she kind of, like, screamed a little bit. The next two gunshots claimed his older sisters, Susie and Patty. And then footsteps back into my bedroom. And then um, a, another shot... It went right next to my head. Um, I had my arms up over my head like this, and the uh, shot, I guess, hit right about here. <clears throat> didn't, didn't hit me or anything. 
And as the person poked me, I think I kind of breathed a little bit or moved. So the killer fired a second time to finish him off, and somehow missed again. And I guess I didn't move that time because then the footsteps started walking away. Do you think he knew you were still alive? No. No. After the killer left, Bill ran almost two miles to the neighbors for help. <laughs> 